coming up on Influencing Entrepreneurs. Don't think entrepreneurship is this end-all, be-all, this religion. Um, it is it, the same way that NBA players make it to the NBA, right? And the chances of that happening are, is the same way that entrepreneurship is going to make it to the top 1%. After years of teaching entrepreneurship and consulting with numerous companies, I realized that when business leaders shared stories of their success, hardships, and mistakes, it always had an impact in the classroom. So I thought, why not share these real-life business cases for education and inspiration? I'm Kazmer Ward, and this is Influencing Entrepreneurs. On today's episode, we speak with Devin Klein with Burn Bootcamp. Devin is a former San Francisco Giants player turned co-founder and CEO of Burn Bootcamp. Devin's passion and enthusiasm for helping people achieve more than they ever thought possible has helped him build Burn Bootcamp into one of the fastest growing franchises in the U.S. His book, Stop Starting Over, has topped the charts as the number one bestseller in the health and fitness category on Amazon. Additionally, Devin has revolutionized how people interact with social media by motivating his audience to love who they are today and be inspired by who they will be tomorrow while changing the way they view themselves. Well, thank you for being here today, Devin. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm pumped up. So how do you make the transition to, from professional athlete to entrepreneur? You know, it's, it's pretty similar, actually. You know, a lot of people are saying like, hey, you know, you go from this world where you're playing sports all the time to playing no sports, and that's a big transition. But really, what, you, what entrepreneurship, really the formula for success in entrepreneurship is being a leader, uh, taking risks, working together with a team, uh, not necessarily having a certain future, right? And so all of these things really condition you to be an entrepreneur. So a lot of people that stop playing collegiate or professional sports uh, kind of think about that as their peak in life, and which is unfortunate because there is so many skills that can translate out. Um, and so for me, entrepreneurship is was a was a pretty easy and natural transition given I'm a natural leader. So with that that first step, you you're going from a nationally known organization with a team of at least nine. <laughs> you start your first business, and I'm imagining it's just you on day one. How do you make that transition from? team sport to one man show? Well, you know, kind of rewinding to my history, my background, I grew up in Battle Creek, Michigan, uh, you know, from the time that I can remember, uh, lived in a very abusive household filled with drugs and violence. And, you know, I saw a lot of things that most young guys don't get to see or gals. And so, you know, having that be um, kind of the dark side Right, and then going through all of these things, like getting released from baseball, starting a business without having any resources, like those things in comparison to what I've seen as a child in the, in the environment that I grew up with, it's cake, right? You, you see the other side, that's why you get a lot of entrepreneurs uh, that you see. I, I was reading a statistic that 79% of, of, of millionaires in this country are actually self-made, so only 21% have actually got an inheritance. Or So it goes to show the power of you know, somebody coming from, you know, the dark side, if you will, or having a less than um, appropriate background to walk them into entrepreneurship and just the grit that it takes. I think th that's really what it is. It's, it's the grit that I established as a young kid, like translating into that. So that grit doesn't lend itself for tons of opportunities. So yeah. I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs that they are self-made millionaires and they've built it from scratch with just a small loan of a million dollars from their father right. or their family. Yeah. Uh, with your type of background, that opportunity 
doesn't come natural. No, it wasn't there. Where do you find that opportunity? So I think one of the, one of the quotes that I love the most, uh, it's a Tony Robbins quote, and he said, when you have no resources, get resourceful. And so resourcefulness was the only skill that I had at the time. When I moved to Charlotte, I knew nobody, right? I had no uh, resources financially. I had $600 to my name. Uh, so I wasn't able, to, I didn't have no mentors to get a million dollar loan or any banking relationships. I was a baseball player, right? As much as people want to glorify that, you know, playing baseball for $1,200 a month when you have to live off yourself is, you know, not an economical good situation to be in. So for me, entrepreneurship has, has definitely been uh, a place where uncertainty has, to, you have to be comfortable with uncertainty. You have to live in that place. And so for me, uh, having no resources, starting with $600 uh, actually in a parking lot because I couldn't afford a lease at the time was the way that I had to start. And it was the only way that I could start. And so to some extent, I was limited in my options, which, which kept me focused. But on the other side of that coin, it probably would have been a little bit easier with a, a million dollar loan and maybe some, uh, some real estate to start with. You start off the transition from professional athlete to trainer. Sounds natural. I'm sure right. it happens very, For sure. very often. How does becoming a trainer turn into a business by itself? The natural skills from baseball, right, were there. I wasn't always talented, uh, you know, in some regard. I had to work my way, you know, to, to be at elite level. I had that work ethic built in, and when you have to apply work ethic to natural skill and talent to get anywhere, you know, that is also translatable into entrepreneurship or corporate America or, or wherever you go, you know, post, you know, the fun days, right, college or high school or, or professional baseball in my particular opinion or a particular situation. But I think that the, the one thing that I always tell people when they're talking about taking their craft and then turning that into the business is you have to ha be passionate about the business side of the business. You can't just be a trainer and then all of a sudden, you know, you're going to wake up one day and you're going to have a 26% EBITDA business and, you know, without understanding what EBITDA is and all the metrics and all the uh, analyzation that goes into that. So the craft is one thing and then you have to develop a secondary craft and that's being uh, sound financially, uh, understanding the, the lingo of business, being able to walk and talk and, and act and behave. And how you do that, you get around other people right, right away as soon as you can possibly, you know, as soon as you're interested in business, you get, you know, mentor right away. But, but you didn't have that at the beginning. You really were just working out of a parking lot to feed yourself for sure. and put a roof over yeah. your head. Your last thought was, what is my target market? What demographics? You were just pay me to train you. Right. Right. When do you realize you have a business? I realized that I had a real business the moment that we had this Saturday session, right? And mind you, we're in a parking lot still at this point. And it's 9 a.m. on a Saturday. It's we're in Carolina, it's 94 degrees out, right? The sun's coming up and it's dead summer. I had 150 people show up to train with me in a parking lot no AC, hot as can be. They were there because of the people. They were there because of each other. And as soon as I realized that the business that I was in was not fitness, the business that I was in was relationships, right? And then to you know apply maybe another level to that. Furthermore, I was a mar I, had, I needed to be a marketer who facilitated a business of relationships, not a trainer who facilitated fitness. Does that make sense? Yes. yes. So, so what's the first big business decision you make at that point? What's the first investment? Uh, the first investment. I think the most important investment any entrepreneur, any entrepreneur can make is into themselves, right? I think you know right off the bat, if you're, you know, even even if you're not 
savvy, if the linguistics for you aren't there yet for business and you're still learning those things, right? Keeping it simple is very beneficial to you. So KPIs, simple key performance indicators, like how many members, and this was my conversation, right? How many members do I need to make $10,000 a month was the first question, right? And then from there, you know, you have to go out and get, you have to build the pipeline, build a sales funnel, build the marketing funnels. And so my first big decision was, what are you going to be an expert at? Me, like this internal conversation, because I knew that if I just continued to only be an expert at training, that I was gonna miss this whole opportunity to, to actually build the business. So my first big decision was, what's the most important thing in business? And how can you learn it the fastest? And so for me it was marketing, and for most people it is marketing, right? Marketing is business. And then I went out and I learned, right? Things like this, where people like you who are passionate about helping entrepreneurs or, or the younger generation and students are then, are then going out and making content. And I was the consumer of this content. So it's kind of ironic that I'm on the other side of it now, but definitely YouTube University was my go-to. Right. Well, and, and what's funny is you built this this whole model out of fitness, and your role slowly transitions away from being a fitness it trainer. Does. What does that do to you, your personality? Because it's Dude. uncomfortable at oh first. Oh my gosh, my ego was the biggest. It got in the way so much. Like my ego was at 21, 22, 23, 24, my biggest problem right? Because you, you're this baseball player and everybody around you is kind of gassing you up the whole time. And then you kind of still carry that with you as you move out. And so I ran into this situation where I'm looking around. I got a few subleased gyms in North Charlotte, meaning a parking lot, a, a, a rec center. I did a, a, a church was, was one of the gyms. And I look around, I have 800 members, you know, and I'm like, I, it blows my mind that, that I'm in this financial situation now. And so, you know, Looking, looking back on that, it's like my mindset in that moment when I had 800 people was like, I'm the only person that can do this as well as I can do it. That was my, that was my mindset. Super poisonous, right? Because how can you scale your impact if, you, if you're the only one that can perform? And it wasn't until one of my mentors uh, at the time that I had just recently found, his name is Jeff Duden, and he said to me, he goes, bro, you're not that cool. Chill, right? He said that to me and I'm just like, wow, this is a dude that's been doing this for so long and so successful for so long, a pioneer in the franchising industry in the modern day, telling me like, back off, get higher level. You know, your ego is stopping you from being a leader. And so as soon as that switch flipped, um, I think really opened my world up because it was no longer driven by my ego. I suppressed that all the way down to where it was nothing. And uh, the future then opened up and now we have 3,300 people in the organization. 419 locations across 38 states, and none of that would have been, a, been possible if I had said, listen, I'm the only one that can do this. It's leaders creating leaders who create leaders who create leaders. And the more, the more leadership that you can create and the longer that chain is, the more influence you're gonna have, the more influence that you have, the more opportunity that you have to impact the world, the more value you add, the more money you make. What clicked with your clients or potential clients that 800 people were showing up? or 150 in the parking lot. I mean, why weren't they showing up for all the physical trainers? Well, because I think that the keyword being physical, yeah. most 95% of the organization, uh, uh, industry rather, are going to tell you 
It's all about your aesthetics. It's all about your six pack. Just look at the marketing messages. Go to your Facebook or Instagram feed and scroll through the marketing messages. And all you're gonna see is, you know, hey, join us for this free session, best workout in the world, or get a six pack now, or lose weight fast, right? It's all this superficial aesthetic. Uh, you know, societally, really, from coast to coast, right, in this country, that's what it has been, that's what it's traditionally been, largely stemming from the fact that for years and years and years, before cell phones, before YouTube, before these things, we had limited access to information. We had these, you know, these TV commercials and, and radio channels and newspapers that were driving our messaging. So now all of a sudden, you get somebody who is coming, uh, coming out, uh, no preconceived notion of the fitness industry, uh, understands uh, what the landscape is from doing research and uh, some, some study there, but you start to see the disconnect, right? So I've spent my whole career so far just trying to figure out the disconnect between why everyone knows what to do. Like, listen, dude, you're not confused. You know eating healthy and moving your body is, is what you need to be doing to be consistently healthy and to progress in that regard, and so does everyone else. Right, so the disconnect wasn't that we were confused as a, as a society, the disconnect was we didn't know how to execute on it. And, and, and if you take that a level higher, the reason why, we didn't have an elevated emotion. We didn't have a vision of ourselves in the future. We didn't have something enchanting that was gonna pull us through those tough times. And so what I started to do was making the physical piece, maybe yeah, we come over and we bond over the workout, but I started messaging how to transcend the physical nature of fitness into mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, sexual health. And I started talking about the person as a whole. And because of that, uh, come off, I came off very genuine, very authentic, very, very much like the boy next door. Like I'm here to help you. I'm an expert, but I'm not the guru who's going to make you have abs like me. I'm the person that's going to be here to help you create a more compelling vision for yourself in the future. And that's what we're working towards. So, by nature, you're cutting out those lose weight quick, 30, 30 pounds in 30 days type of, type of scheme, type of vibe. So you build a model based on a positive mindset as well as uh, uh, a healthy body. Yeah, and then when everyone, everyone starts to, you know, it's like there's statistics around peace gatherings, right? When, the, when people come in from all over the world to come to like New York City to protest for peace, there's statistics and studies that show that the volatility is lowered. It's the same way when you bring a bunch of people together, all focused on mental growth and emotional growth, that, that's all gonna grow and it's gonna amplify and elevate itself just in that regard. So that started happening at scale. Let's talk about your, the, your mental health starting up. There's a few uh-oh moments. There's a few disasters, blunders along the of way. Course. What were those challenges that really made you rethink? Yeah, the first one was how am I gonna grow, right? We mentioned getting rid of the ego. I highly suggest everyone take an audit of their ego. Like that is usually the number one thing that stops every human being, either not enough confidence or, or, or too overconfident, right, in themselves. I think uh, the second thing that I went through that was a big struggle for me was how do I scale my operations and how do I keep that up with the interest in the development of the business? So we opened up for franchising in 2015, right? We had uh, five company owned units, which were owned and operated by my wife and I here in the Charlotte area. Uh, we then took those locations and we sold those and flipped them into franchise locations, right? Now they're paying the royalty stream and now we've built this little franchise out of our little you know, small business startup. As soon as we announced, right, that happened, 
Within the first eight months, we had 80 people from just Huntersville, North Carolina and Cornelius and Mooresville, North Carolina up in Lake Norman area who bought franchises all over the Southeast, 80 people, right? So I don't have an, I don't have operational support. I don't have capital. I don't have human resources. I don't have an operation leader or an IT leader or a marketing leader. I have nothing. It's me, my wife, and you know, two other people that are helping us part-time and some trainers. So my biggest challenge was not overdeveloping the operations. In other words, don't let the business development get so far ahead that, that, that you're handing these franchise partners who expect to get supported in a certain way and then we drop the ball on that support. Then our validation goes down because now those people are a little pissed off that you know they just invested into this. They're getting le uh, less support than they thought they were gonna get and that goes back into the sales process now. That validation now, new prospects are gonna come in and talk to the current prospects and if they feel any type of ill way about it, that's gonna translate into the ability to grow. So what I did was against a lot of people's in the franchise industry's uh, advice is I pumped the brakes on our development. We developed 167 units in the first 18 months. That's really fast, right? Any franchise system that can develop three in their first year is considered industry like, you know, excellence. So we did 167, right? So there became a problem right there. Um, how do you mitigate that problem? You eat last. Right? Go hire payroll, go hire staff, go hire up, go put your money where your mouth is. If this is a, if all, you know, the 167 people that we sold and we said, hey, listen, we're gonna build this business together, you and I, you're gonna run it on the ground, we'll run it from Mission Station. You gotta maintain that integrity and that belief. And uh, that was an important lesson for me and I'm so glad I did not listen to some advice that I got because otherwise, um, I wouldn't have done that. Everyone said, keep going for speed, keep going for speed, keep going for speed. You're breaking records on the, road, on the roads that have been paid for you by these other franchisors. You're breaking the records. Like, you're gonna be one of the fastest growing concepts, not just in fitness, but in franchising ever if you keep going at the speed you're at. That wasn't important to me. Know your outcome and then reverse engineer the outcome, right? Qu quantity was a happenstance. Quality was very important to me. So you pump the brakes. Yeah. Why do so many franchise models ignore sustainability over growth? I think in this country, speed is valued. A lot of people don't want to get rich slow. They want to get rich fast. And for me, when I had 500 members in a few sublet gyms, I was the richest I'd ever been in my life. You know, making $8,000 a month to me was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Like I've hit the jackpot. Once you reach the financial goal that you have to have personally for your standard and your threshold, now you're playing with house money after that. And so as soon as I realized that, hey, we have our finances dialed in as a family, my, my wife and I, girlfriend at the time, um, we have our finances dialed in. Okay, now everything else we can roll, we can gamble with, we can reinvest. And uh, you know, we've lived very, very modestly and still do, you know, because we don't need a lot, but we lived very modestly to almost to the point where our personal budget was so tight, any dollar that would, we would make on top of that would go back into the business. You don't scale from you know, a few $600 in a parking lot to you know, a, a nine-figure organization in five years, six years, if, if you don't have that mentality. You start building a franchise model, your customer changes, because now it's not people coming for physical fitness, yeah. it's people looking to get in the business. How do you start managing how you communicate to your new customers, franchisees. Yeah, so in most systems, right, I think I, I think the 
telltale sign of an excellent brand and franchising is that your consumers, your patrons, your clients, your customers, whatever you want to call them, the people that are funding you, right? Those people become your franchisees. And most successful brands, that's how the organic growth happens really fast. But then, you know, you start to take a look. Uh, curiosity has always been a, a trait of mine that I think is a, a really undervalued and overlooked and underappreciated trait for an entrepreneur is being curious, right? Take, take, get the advice, get the information, but run that through your own filter of curiosity. And so for me, I was always like, well, you know, if, uh, if, we, can, if we can grow this fast, right? And, you know, we can have this type of impact and I can do it all organically right now in-house, like inside out, why go elsewhere? Why look for anything else? So what we started to do instead of, you know, we going back to the physical elements of, you know, why most people work out, right? We're transcending that. We're trying to bring this 360 holistic approach into people's life to create real lasting change. Well, can't leave out the financial piece, right? And so we packaged this offering up and initially that message initially, right? Uh, was the same person. It's the client and uh, it's the franchise prospect, but they both happen to be going to the gym. You're just talking to them different ways. Nowadays, now that we, you know, are established and we're, uh, you know, in hundreds of open locations, now it's the more institutional investor or the corporate refugee um, or the, uh, you know, uh, empty nester, you know, whose children just were coming to Queens and then left Queens, and, you know, and they're, they're working and they're lonely and they want to do something. Now you start to get, now you start to get data driven um, with your messaging and the leads that are coming inbound, we start to uh, give each one of those leads a persona and start messaging to them contextual to their platform that they're most likely on, right? A business owner, a corporate refugee, probably most likely on maybe like a LinkedIn, right? Maybe a uh, somebody who is like a 20-year-old, 25-year-old millennial that, you know, might want to partner with their uncle, might be on Instagram, you know what I mean? So it's contextual to the platform and to the person. So if it's a corporate refugee, I'm not saying, hey, you've enjoyed Burn Bootcamp to change your life physically, mentally, emotionally, let's do it financially. It's, hey, I know how rough corporate America is. Come on a, a winning team where we're not anti-corporate, you know, because we are a big organization, but uh, where you can control your own destiny. So the messaging is definitely contextual to platform and persona. How do you differentiate yourself so you have long-term lifespan? Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. And differentiators, right, I think are, are one thing. I always like to take those two levels deeper and say that a differentiator is really just disguised as a, as a, as a feature of the business. And then the features actually translate to emotions. And those emotions are really what we're marketing against, not necessarily the differentiators. Does that make sense? So, okay, differentiators, right? We have child watch. Okay, every location has child watch. There's not another boutique concept in the, in the country that has free child watch uh, as a part of their membership at scale. There's mom and pa shops, but not at scale. We have uh, focus meetings, which are one-on-one -on -one sit downs. It's personal training in a group setting. You're my client, I sit down, we go over things every three weeks to make sure you're staying on the right track. Uh, you know, we're women focused. 94% of our clients are women. So, the, I mean, there, and there's more, but now those are the differentiators. Okay, now the features to that, okay, we have this beautiful, child watch room where you get to bring your child in and they get to have fun and play with all the toys. Why is that important? Because emotion, the mother gets the worry-free workout. She doesn't have to pay extra, uh, creating financial stress in her life. She gets a worry-free workout with her child right down the hallway. We differentiate ourselves in messaging, right? By making the client the hero. 
Make sense? Most brands are gonna, be, in my industry, are gonna be like, hey, look at us, we're the best workout. We burn the most calories. Uh, we have the best facility, okay? We're saying, client, your life is tough. I get it, I understand it. We have free childcare so that you can have a stress-free workout. And by messaging in that way, rather than the differentiators leading the way, um, you're connecting with people, right? And going back to the relationship business, you're building a relationship, you're getting them through a challenging time in their life. Looking back at all you've accomplished, what would you have done different? There's a lot of things that I wish, a lot of mistakes that I wish I hadn't made. I don't think I would have done anything differently because those mistakes that I did make taught me the lesson, right? And I think that's a common theme uh, in, in a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of you know, successful people in corporate America and you know, nonprofits. What you, you fail and you chase failure. You're not actually trying to stay away from it. You're actually seeking it, right? As a leader, I think a, a trait of a, a great leader is to say, uh, I, I know that intuitively as, as the leader of the organization that I'm most often right when I have an intuition or when I you know, have an opinion on something, but the difference is that I'm seeking to be wrong, right? I think that I'm right. Let me go run this by the most three believable people that I possibly can who have great opinions to see if they can break what I'm thinking. As I move forward, right, that will be manifested more and more and more in a bigger and better way. And that would probably be the one thing that I wish I would have learned earlier is to let the team make the plan, right? Ask better questions, you're gonna get better answers. And if you ask, if you get better answers, you're gonna get better results. And so for me as a leader, the ability and the skill rather to ask the right questions at the right time with the right conviction and tonality is so important if you want to go for speed and if you want people to own the plan. Because if you tell them the plan, here's what they're gonna do. Right, and you need okay. those people, but early on, when you start a business, it feels like you're on an island all by yourself. You mentioned early that you came kind of from the dark side, came from, from uh, some trying times in your youth. Entrepreneurs in general are looked at as if they're the mad scientists. Yeah. How do you relate to those number one around you in your circle, going being the mad scientist? And then how do you also do that going back to family? and yeah. coming out of an environment <laughs> that I'm gonna guess yeah. most people still stay in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So my wife would love that question. Um, she's my biggest fan, uh, and I'm her biggest fan, but she'd be the first one to tell you that I'm freaking crazy, man. Like, I am. I'm, I'm a crazy, I'm a mad scientist, right? The, the ability for an entrepreneur to look at a plot of land and envision a skyscraper and all the intricacies of it and how it stands and how it feels and, and actually envision that to be true and then start to manifest, manifest that, you know, in your biochemistry and start to feel that, it starts to become real before it's even real. It's like, you know, it's like an architect. You're an architect and you're writing the blueprint before you're ever building the building. You know, and I think that any entrepreneur-based startup or, or, you know, people are out there right now just getting started in their organization or they're, you know, even, even ahead or below where we're at, you know what I mean? I think it's important that you keep that. You keep that craziness. You keep that because you want, you want to be audacious. Like, what's the point of dreaming? What's the point of believing? What's the point of going after something if you're gonna spend time thinking about it anyways? So why not spend that time thinking about it in a really big way? One of two things are gonna happen. You're either gonna hit those goals in which, you're, in which then you should set them higher uh, and, and create that gap, or you're never gonna hit it, but you're going to be further along than where you had originally set your goal in the first place, just by that nature. So it's like, you only have so much focus, and so getting your team to focus on audacity, to me, is a big part of our growth. We actually have leadership meetings where we, we spend a lot of time in those leadership meetings talking about things that are 
crazy that everyone, as soon as they, somebody says it, everyone think, oh, no way we can do that, right? But I've conditioned my people to be like, that's believable. I can see how that works. You know what I mean? So Google, for example, right? They were uh, manufacturing energy for their servers by flying windmills. Like, and that came from one of these, you know, kind of audacious moments that one of their employees had. So if you're crazy and you're an entrepreneur and you're audacious, keep that. Don't try to mask it. Don't, don't try to be some, something different or somebody different. Uh, be you, do you, be different, be weird, be crazy, and instill that craziness into your team. As of right now, what's the end goal or vision for Burn Bootcamp? Uh, Burn Bootcamp itself, in terms of, let's talk like logistics, uh, you know, you know how, how are we gonna get 10,000 units open, right? I really believe this is a concept uh, globally in hundreds of countries where we can develop 10,000 units over the next 12 years, and we're very committed to that, and that's not just an inference at this point, um, that is, that's, that's data, right? That's, we're, we're, we're parsing out all of the territories all over the world, um, already got them locked in, the, 1,248 in the United States that we want to develop and we'll continue to expand that strategy globally. Now, if we hit that goal, you know, great. I can't see 12 years into the future, but what I do know is that wherever we're at in 12 years, we're going to wake up on a Monday and we're going to see 5 million people on that Monday logging in to be a part of Burn Bootcamp in whatever capacity. And that's always been the vision is, you know, I like to have very acute Audacious, but acute, right? It's the vision and detail contrast. Have the vision, 10,000 units. Devin, how are you gonna do that? I don't know, but all I know is I envision the day that that happens, we're waking up and five million people are logging in and we're all sitting around a big screen at our state-of-the-art HQ and we're toasting champagne and you know, I'm wearing green and blue and you're, you know what I mean? And you're getting so detailed with how that vision is gonna manifest that you're starting to get people talking about it as if it's already happened. Um, so know exactly where we're gonna be. I think anybody that tells you they know exactly what their long range plan is or their LRP is, is confused more than, than, they, than they know, uh, but definitely 10,000 units. So where do you balance where you wanna spend most of your time or you wish for the most success? The Burn Bootcamp brand or Devin's brand? I think they're one and the same, but definitely you don't have a business if you just have a personal brand. Um, everyone, by the way, has a personal brand. It's called your reputation. Whether you choose to capitalize on that or not, it's your own choice. Um, look at the biggest names in the world in business, right? They're not people, they're businesses. You know, it, you look at the S&P 500, or you look at Apple, you look at Google, you look at Nike, you look at Facebook. Um, I'm gonna add burn to that category. When you've reached those goals and you get bored of it, as all entrepreneurs do, what's the next thing? <laughs> Um, you know, it's always, it's always a, a battle, right, as an entrepreneur because you have so many innovative ideas and I think the discipline that I've been able to, um, I, I think, self-implement for, for, for me and my business is to not rid yourself of trying to think those thoughts. You want to stay creative. So every morning I get up and I say, what are one or two new creative ideas that I've never thought of before? And I just write those down. 95% of them I'm never going to use, um, but a few of them I have. Our Burn Nutrition supplement line uh, is, a, is, a, is birthed from that kind of creative thinking. But 
focus is all you have. And entrepreneurs have this kind of squirrel mindset for the most part, where they're like, ooh, nice shiny object over here. Ooh, look at this new opportunity. Or ooh, what if we did that? Or what if we, what if we started like a, a, a digital video on demand program? Or what if we uh, decided to do a new group underneath this, uh, underneath this franchise brand? I implore anyone listening to this, like stay focused. Don't, don't get to 90% of what you think is, is good or you think is complete and then stop and refocus because if you don't take it all the way through and then a step further, um, if you don't get to that, that peak of that mountain and you stop a little bit short, hey, you slip on a rock, that slide down is quick. You know what I mean? So for me, staying focused, um, I have all these ideas that I'm kind of compartmentalizing, but until we're getting to 1,248 domestic units filling up the white space, uh, when our unit economics, uh, which are important, as important as a small business, right? When we have a 25 to 35% EBITDA margin on every location at all of them, then I might start thinking about something else. But until then, laser focus. So right now, any new ideas that don't fit in the burn boot camp model? I definitely can see um, the relationships that we've built uh, at the client level and how loyal our clients are. It's like a, they're, they're like a sports, they're like sports teams fan. Very, very similar, you know? You're gonna buy the jersey. You're gonna sit front row. You know you're gonna you're gonna buy into everything that the lifestyle has to offer. It's not just football. If you're a New York Jets fan, it's the whole lifestyle around it. So we have clients doing that. So if I think about the future, uh, I'm thinking about a brand group, right? Burn Bootcamp being just one vision, a division of that brand group, uh, where our clients that we've spent so long building relationships with can benefit from other services that also complement them trying to gain. Uh, you know, a bigger and better vision of themselves, being more healthy, being more happy. And then taking our franchise partners and all of these people who I'm so privileged, probably one of the coolest parts of my job is seeing them be successful, right? And be able to quit their corporate job or whatever and just take their life to a whole new level financially. They're gonna have some reciprocity, right? So then developing other uh, concepts that are franchise concepts that can not only fit into our franchise partner network, not only uh, can be offerings to, to a built-in market that we already have, but that also can use our infrastructure at headquarters that we've built out that's very fresh and modern and unique, uh, kind of stands up on the archaic nature of franchising and makes it very modern. What do you do in your personal life that keeps this energy level up so you can take it to work? I work harder on myself than I do in the business. That's so key. Harder on myself, not, but not the, the caveat to that is not just any old random knowledge, right? You need to know it's focusing, right? Okay, so if I wanna to get to 10,000 units, one of those first steps is to fill up the white space in the United States, mention the number 1248. In order to do that, I have to know all of the little nuances that go into helping a multi-unit franchise owner build out a 50, 100, 150 unit empire. I have to know um, all the insurance laws, all the legal, down so deep, right, that, that in order to do that, I have to have that knowledge. So for me, my self-development, my personal development, which I spend more time on doing than I actually do running the business, I'm learning about things that I'm not yet running into within franchising. Right? I'm not trying to go out and learn how to um, you know, run a nonprofit at this point, right? It's a great idea I've probably had at some point. Focus, focus, focus. So the personal development, everything stays focused right in that vertical. Like the niches are in the, the riches are in the niches, right? You heard that one before? Everybody has, right? The riches are in the niche, especially nowadays. Um, go deep and get really good at what you do. Be an expert. If you could share one piece of advice to any aspiring business owner, what would it be? Entrepreneurship isn't for everyone. 
It's a hot word. It's a sexy topic. I ate it for four years, right? Working 100 to 110 hours a week, paying myself 30 grand. Which you're lucky to get. Which, I, which I'm scraping for, right? Right. Reinvesting everything. Now, I could have stopped, right? I could have made, but I wanted to build, 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 build. So there's gonna be a period of time. If you are a thoroughbred entrepreneur and it's in your DNA, you go into it knowing I'm not gonna eat well for five years, right? And if, and if you're willing, if you're willing, to, it's kind of like an actor, right? You know, being an actor, that you got five years before anyone even takes you seriously. Because everyone in their, in their mother wants to be an entrepreneur. Everyone in their brother wants to be an actor. Having the understanding that that's what it takes and then being fulfilled with that process is I think an important thing. Because being the, being the number five, six, seven, eight, ten at a big organization and walking in right out of college to a, a, a nice job, uh, you know, $70,000 with some benefits isn't always unappealing. Don't think entrepreneurship is this end-all, be-all, this religion. Um, it is it, the same way that NBA players make it to the NBA, right? And the chances of that happening are, is the same way that entrepreneurship is gonna make it to the top 1%. Same exact way. So you have to have it in your DNA a little bit, just like LeBron has it in his DNA. Well, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Uh, anyone watching can learn more at www.burnbootcamp.com. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate your time. Yeah, man, absolutely. This has been great. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. Yep. Thanks for watching. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com backslash Nexogy Education or visit influencingentrepreneurs.com to catch up on previous episodes with Casimir Ward.